This is the Poetry in Motion podcast on the Blood Red channel with Neil Fitzmorris, bringing you all the big news and even bigger views on Liverpool FC. Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Poetry in Motion with me, uh, Neil Fitzmorris, joined today by Sean Bradbury. Hello, Sean, how are you, pal? Very well, thanks, mate. Yeah, busy few days, but plenty to go out and plenty to tee off again, so yeah, in good shape. Do you reckon I think it's going to be a quiet one? There's nothing to talk about. Um, we have a debutante. He's just warming up. He's just stretching the hamstrings out there. Uh, and then we're going to allow him on the pitch. Marcus Banks is here. Hello, Marcus. How are you, pal? I am. Not bad. Yeah, same as Sean. Bit of a whale in two days. But, you know, it should be a quiet one. It's... <laughs> Shouldn't it just? Uh, all right, then. Look, as if it wasn't bad enough that Liverpool's season has been inconsistent, to say the least. Um, uh, the last time... We did a podcast uh, for Portrait in Motion. We were uh, just about to kick off the second leg against uh, Real Madrid. Just two goals needed. Uh, I know that's a, a tough prospect against Real Madrid, but they were kind of a depleted Real Madrid, let's be honest with you. There was a lot of the big stars were sort of missing from the lineup. Uh, as it happened, I went round to um, the Hotel Tier right by the ground for a really cold um, second leg. And um, as Liverpool have done... Uh, a lot this season, Sean. Huffed, puffed. Couldn't blow the house down. Couldn't really do any of the things. Um, and it was a. In the end, it was. A, it was. A, you know, there were a few little chances. I mean, Mo Salah missed an absolute nail down at the start that might have changed the game, but uh, didn't get it. As has been the case, as I say before, for most of this season. So what we end up is where there's a pretty controlled Real Madrid uh, breezing into um, the semi-finals of the. Uh, of the Champions League and um, and obviously all the, all the shit followed, but uh, let's just let's just briefly talk about that for for a moment, boys. Um, you know, sy- symptomatic of what's been wrong with Liverpool this season, Sean. Too little, too late. Not enough, anyway. Really on the pitch. No, I think that's exactly right. When you're reflecting back on that game, and I, I think you have to look at it across the two legs and say that it was lost in the first leg. You know, it was too big a deficit. Realistically, given how Liverpool have performed this season, to come back in that second leg. Then equally, you look at what happened on the night and especially in the first half and you can say it, it could have been one in the second leg still. And I think the tactical gambles clock stuck in the first leg, which didn't pay off. I think broadly the things he changed for the second did work. You know, once again, not seeing Thiago in the lineup and other bits and pieces did raise eyebrows before the game. But I think Milner was a fantastic performer. Maybe there was always this idea to, to just give him an hour, just burn him out and just get him to totally press Madrid and put them on the back foot. That worked. As you say, the Salah chance and others were there. It's the same old story. You can always say this and focus on the what-ifs, but I do think if Liverpool had got that early goal and, and even had got a goal, maybe even before 60-70, and re- really got Madrid wobbling and put them on the back foot, then it could have been a totally different story. But yeah, I think you have to say that errors and perhaps an error in approaching the first tie was the real defining factor of why Liverpool didn't go through. But, yeah, I still think back to that first half and some of those chances and how Madrid were... I thought they were still having a bit of a go in the first half. Eventually, Zidane got them to sit back, didn't he, like he did in the first leg. And and then it was a totally different game and it was a bit more easy for them. And you can start saying, you know, Madrid were savvy. They were the repeat European champions and bringing all that now to the table. But, yeah, even for moments in that first half and, and early in the second, it did look like Liverpool might be able to salvage their season but sadly not and, and uh, on to the top four battle now and hopefully we'll be there again next year Yeah and Marcus I mean as Sean just said really it's just that you know there were moments when they were in the game but it's just that inconsistency up front again isn't it I mean we've just seen it if we scurry forward uh, to the game we've just had where, where, where we were where we were in control of doing that as well and we end up drawing right in the, right in the, in the dying moments of the game because of missed chances I mean you know, Sadio Mane, even though he scored you the night, I mean, he, he sort of continues to stink the place out, doesn't he? And, and it's a shame because there were a lot of moments last year when Liverpool's incredible um, season and, and, uh, and victory in, in, the, in, the, in the Premiership where the odd one or two chances were getting put away and that was the difference between a lot of games, wasn't it? You know, they were tight games, but these they, they were lethal. We had the, we had a lethal front, front uh, three. And there were moments the, the, the other night against Madrid where... There was one particular moment I remember where Bobby Firmino got the ball and Trent was, was was in acres of space on his own screaming for it and he just sort of meandered forward. And everyone where I was, there was hundreds of people just shouting, knock it to Trent. I mean, it was it was there. It was, he was in his eye line and he meandered forward and then 
and eventually Waxaball doesn't even get to Trenton. It was it was that kind of lack of lack of spark and lack of uh, intensity, Marcus, that sort of haunted us all the season, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think Mane in particular is has been a player who's who's been there for the big moments, and he, he's a player who's always turned up for Liverpool. And I think he had about fifteen minutes of that, of that second leg against Madrid, where I think he, he took he took the full back on, and, and you thought, oh, is 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 this is, is this going to be his game? Is this going to be the game that he turns things around and, and shows the Mane of old? But then, like you say, it, it returns to that sort of just. I think that's been the most concerning thing for me. I think obviously Firmino has been out of form for a while. Mane's also been out of form, and Jota being injured. The culmination of problems has probably led to that that dip at the, the front end of the pitch. But for me, it's it's just like as you say, it's the lack of intensity, it's the lack of urgency, it's the lack of intent. It's whether that's just just a, a mental strain on the players after after three years of such high intensity football, and then every single thing that's gone wrong, possibly going wrong, whether that that's just mental fatigue and and players just thinking, oh, what what else can we do and. Whether they just need to mentally reset because, like you say, I think I think a point of moments in that in that first like against against Madrid, it was it, it wasn't just missed chances. Obviously, there was there was the mistakes, but there was also just a lack of lack of pressing. There's a we allowed Luka Modric and Tony Kroos, two of the best centre, central midfielders in the world, to dictate the game, and two of their goals came from just a lack of pressure from the forwards on Tony Kroos, and that you could see that that was Zidane's game plan. It was give Kroos and and Modric the ball and. Uh, fireballs over the top and, and Liverpool's forwards who are obviously being praised and rightly so for defending from the front in recent years they weren't doing that and that as you say the first leg we lost the game in the first leg so that not only the missed chances but that lack of pressing and intensity and stopping two of the best midfield players in the world from playing their game is what cost Liverpool dearly in the end Yeah remarkable I mean um, you know Modric 35 years of age and ran around like a two year old uh, you know he, he, he sort of he showed what, what the energy levels that you need to succeed in that kind of level of football, and, and and he showed us up a little bit. I think it's that. I think you're right, Marcus. I think that, I think the one thing that's left a lot of Liverpool fans scratching their heads is that lack of intensity, and it must be, you know, it must just be down to some sort of mental fatigue and some sort of, uh, you know, this this sort of three season burnout that they talk about because. Uh, I know it's been talked about of other teams and certainly other club teams as well that the intensity drops after the third and fourth season, but. Um, that that has been the one thing I think that has been absolutely lacking, is that is that is that lack of lack of uh, press. We used to press from the front, and everyone would get involved, and and because they haven't done it, it's almost as though Klopp has had to then try a different technique, and and it, and it certainly hasn't been working. Well, in that case, then if it, you know if it's just about playing too many matches for too long, what we really needed was another league to get involved in, didn't we? Really, just to just to really emphasise. Um, just how knackered we were. Uh, we thought that um, we thought that um, the Leeds one-one was all we had to worry about, really, because we'd, we'd lost momentum um, playing football. But actually, in the background, obviously, had been announced. Then it was brewing this um, this remarkable kind of couple of weeks. Well, let's just say, let's just say, a week in football uh, it could be a long time. It was just incredible, Sean. Um, the announcement that without any consultation, without any kind of planning supposedly between anyway club owners and fans of course and club owners and players and club owners and staff and club owners and managers the big six um we're going to break off and and join the uh, the the uh, the super league uh, just explain to us Sean in layman's terms if anyone has been on mars lately or you know for people just walking the dogs across the field with the headphones in who might not have have got into the marrow of what was going on there just explain what this was going to offer um, and what the proposal was about, if you can, Sean. Yeah, so, as you say, Fitty, it all came out on Sunday, and this has been brewing for a long time, you know, talks, and I think this this actual plot um, itself has been going on for a long time, and lots of collusion between all the various owners of the founding member teams involved in it, but what got spat out on Sunday, and eventually was revealed very late on Sunday night, which even of itself, I think it's a tactical thing, you know, it's no surprise this all came out now when, no fans in stadiums and everyone's at a bit of a low ebb, but that's a side point. So the the, the kind of plan that as it was presented was a sort of expanded Champions League style format, even more games between the very biggest teams. And in the eyes of the, the 12 founder member clubs, you know, this was going to become the premier competition in European football that wouldn't directly replace the Champions League, but it certainly would for them. Um, so yeah, you had these 12 founder member teams, the first ones to break rank, and the plan was to bring it up to 15 teams who I think were kind of 
permanent members and, and were protected and couldn't drop out of this league. And then they would bump that up to a 20 per season who'd be involved in it. And those extra five were apparently going to come in on some kind of sporting merit um, basis, which, I mean, that that's the first huge problematic element of it, isn't it? You know, you've got these 15 teams who'd be enshrined as the elite. How and why are they selected? That's a thing. And then if you're adding five extra ones, how does that work in terms of sport and merit across all the leagues? And, you know, backing all this was huge amounts of money. I think JP Morgan were underwriting all the, the, the finance behind it. And I think apparently there were suggestions that clubs who were initially signing up for it would be getting a windfall of like 300 million or so just to sign up at this stage. So you can see the temptation for them in a, in a kind of warped way, especially in these times when, you know, financial peril it is affecting clubs and it's affecting big clubs to a certain extent as, you know, as well as others. But there's just so many obvious problems with it, isn't there? You know, the, the closed shop element is a massive one. I think so many players and managers have spoken out about that this week and have spoken eloquently and have done the talking that owners weren't really willing to do. So I think the Guardiola quote saying, sport's not a sport when success is guaranteed and when the relationship between effort and reward doesn't exist, he got it absolutely spot on. Klopp himself said, why, why would you want to play Madrid every week? Isn't the, the scarcity and the journey and, and the, the kind of uncertainty of European competition is what makes it. And then obviously, you know, just, just in terms of other basic elements of all this, it had a huge impact on, or it would have had a huge impact on the English football pyramid. But you can say the same for every other European league in Spain and Italy, you know, wherever else had teams signing up for it. How does that work? You have these giant clubs, you'd be even richer, who conceivably would still be in their domestic competition, but they'd be coming into it with even more money, even more of an advantage, or potentially even less kind of will to do well in it because this is suddenly this huge international European competition is is there over and above everything else and they can never drop out of it. So, yeah, something that's kind of been in the post for a while and I think is partly, and this is an important point for us to talk about as well, it's partly a result of other problems in football that still exist still need to be addressed. But, yeah, this monstrous plan popped up on Sunday and thankfully over the course of the last few days it's been kicked into the long grass. But I think the battle only starts now, really, in terms of the future of football and that's that's hopefully what happens next. Well, remarkably, Marcus, I mean, we did eventually get uh, an apology of sorts from um, John W. Henry who, who, who did a little video, nice of him. Um, and in that video... What was quite mark, marked about one of the things he said was he said that this this was never going to go ahead without the backing of the fans. Now it's come out today that the, the Real Madrid um, president Perez has, has basically said this hasn't gone anywhere because you've all they'd all signed a legally binding contract. Um, all the founding clubs have signed it. They can't get out of it, so that means they have to pay a, a, an exit fine um, before they go anywhere. So this very much smells to me of let's just keep them quiet for now. But let's keep this bubbling along. Um, so never were the fans um, consulted about this or considered it in any in any step of this, really, Marcus. No, I, I think the line that you just picked out there is the one that that really stuck out for me as well. I think so, some people were questioning whether he, he would have had an apology in the first place if there wasn't such fan backlash after the initial statement, which which had absolutely nothing in it. And I think Arsenal were the only club to to apologise in their initial statement, but. I think he deserves some credit for, for putting his face in front of a camera, even if he pro probably was just reading off a script. But yeah, that that line, he, when I was listening through, that line just doesn't sit right with me at all. The fact that it wouldn't have went, went, went on with, without the fans, but, but the fans weren't asked, which is what I, I, I struggle to wrap my head around in the first place. That these are obviously savvy businessmen, and, and no, no, they're running a club as a business, and that's fine in some eyes, but... I can't wrap my head around that they've sat down at a board and said, we're going to do this and thought that the fans were going to be on board with it because that's the only way this was going to work. The biggest stakeholder in the club is the fans and I just can't understand how all these business people have sat together and thought, yeah, we can do this because and the fans will be okay with it because it was it was never going to work. It was, it was a, it was a full-on non-starter. I haven't spoke to one person who, who thinks that it's a good idea and, and would have been okay with it. So I think... The, the sorry doesn't sit really sit right with me and you're right it's it's not it's not the end Perez is is he's a man who usually gets what he wants to and and the American owners haven't been you know they've been upfront that they, they want the the Premier League and European football to follow that American NFL style 
closed market, salary capped, you know, owners having the power. And I think Joel Glazer's open letter stated that too. He he, he apologised belatedly, but he also said that we're still not happy with with how this this European football is currently run because these these big clubs who think that they deserve some some sort of free gift purely because they won a few trophies in the past and and, and the size of the club rather than sport and merit, they they still want to be the top dogs. They want to have the, the biggest share of the pie, even if they're not performing on the pitch. I think I mean Sean Sean said it too. How are these clubs being selected? Tottenham Hotspur, don't know how they've been added in. It was something like I think Liverpool are the only team who were in there to have won the Champions League in the last five years, and then AC Milan haven't even played in the Champions League for the last ten years. So and and you look at the, the league tables now, half of the clubs aren't even in in the top top of their division, not even in the top four places. So the whole thing just stinks, and and the apology, like you say, is probably just papering over the cracks and all. Poetry emotion on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can think of, Sean, is that there is such, which we all know, but there is such a disconnect between club owners and fans that I don't think at any stage that they think that the fans weren't going to like this. I think they just, they see an open, they see a full stadium and they go, yeah, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll put, we'll put that girl who won Britain's Got Talent a couple of years ago with a, with a dog running through hoops and they'll all just cheer because that's what they do. Um, you know, it was the way I, I put on Twitter, this was the worst business idea since sellotaping a laser disc on top of a Betamax. You'll have to look them both up, Marcus, to it about 20 <laughs> years before you were born. And calling it the new iPhone. I mean, this was like, Clive Sinclair, there's another one for you, write a list down, Marcus. <laughs> Clive Sinclair, who owns Sinclair Computers, about 30-odd years ago, decided that the whole world was going to start driving a C- Sinclair C5 electric car. Looked like something you'd you'd take at a, an umpa-lumpa to his mates in. It was... It was, it was <laughs> And he ploughed all his money into it, and this was this, that was a better idea than this. This was never ever going to float. I mean, which just shows the disconnect, because I mean, you know, they would have only had to have one meeting with a, with a fan base who'd say, "Well, why aren't we going? Why aren't they going? Why are they going?" It was like a big frat party, wasn't it? Let's you know, let's in, let's invite the cool kids and let's all all the dweebs can watch from inside from outside in the window. And like you say, Sean, they, they went after them, even the cool kids. These were teams that were desperately trying to get some sort of success and found that this was a way they could do it by sneaking into this kind of, you know, this really dodgy league. Um, so how they didn't consult anywhere down the line to find any kind of impasse and say, well, this isn't, this actually isn't going to work. Um, we'll talk now about the hypocrisy that I think it's that, that, that has unfailed since it, because we all know straight away that this Super League was, was nonsense. But boy, oh boy, did the UEFA's and the FA's of the world come out and take the moral high ground on this. And, and, and I mean, we all know UEFA and we all know FIFA. UEFA at one point uh, during the course of all this said, this this is like spitting in the fans' faces. Well, I'll tell you what, they've been yakking up some golly in our faces for, for a long time. I used to go to Anfield Comp, we had a golly pit. I feel like as a football fan, we've been at the bottom of it for the last 30 years. They've been under-allocating and overselling tickets for, for many, many, many years. And to have the goal to come out and say, this is not how you treat fans. I mean, that to me was an absolute shocker, Sean. Uh, absolutely. I think this is completely now the key point about the whole the whole thing. It's like it's like the first, there's been a late winner in the first leg and okay, Super League's collapsed. We've at least kicked the can on that and, you know, got that off the table for now. But uh, as much as the mask has slipped a little bit and you can look at the, you know, the plot and the, the key architects among that specific proposal has come out and they've revealed themselves, they've shown their hand, the, the amount of heads that have been pulled out the sand and have called them out on it, you know, at, like you say, UEFA, the Premier League, all the big football bodies, you know, great. They've spoken out against this idea. They now have to turn everything onto themselves and, and assess their role in the game and, and everything like that. And the government as well, I thought the fact that, you know, you've got Boris Johnson threatening to drop legislative, legislative bombs on all this. It's like, well, OK, where, where have you been in terms of the last 20, 30 years when you kind of letting things slide in terms of football governance and the way the game's developed. But it, this is now a massive opportunity. You know, you so often see companies and in, in other walks of life, people will use a bad situation to try and favour their own ends and drive something through in a kind of ideological sense. And I think you've seen that, you know, these clubs have thought, well, the game's at a bad point, it's down, finances are in question and in peril in some respects. Let's try and drive this through now. Well, what's now got to happen is everyone who's spoken out against this has got to unite channel the momentum and 
just kind of push it forward. I think the fact that we've always had shadow, shadowy ideas about what a Super League could be like, who might be behind it, how it might be announced, how it might look. You know, they, they've presented something and it's been rejected. But it, the conversation cannot stop. You know, every form of change needs a tipping point. And I think we've just had one. We've just seen it, you know. And I, I just call upon everyone now to support campaigns, you know, get involved. Anything you see that you think you can back, you know, do it. Fan, fan power is a massive thing. And I think, you know, the fact that fans weren't consulted is the worst thing about all this. Probably the fact that the, all the big bodies, like, you know, your way through FIFA, showed their teeth a little bit and spoke about it was ultimately the thing that stopped this. But at the same time, you know, already this season, we've seen fans act against pay-per-views and things like that. And, you know, paying £15 for one-off games. And even in a time when it's hard to collectivise because... You're not at grounds together. You, you can't really go out and do anything. You can only kind of really protest digitally. You know, fans have made a difference. And it's just, it's a real point now for everyone to get behind something and try and drive forward change. And I think it'd be such a wasted opportunity if that didn't happen. And it's down to everyone who feels passionate to get involved about it. But it's down to the likes of ourselves, the likes of Sky and others to just think, well, what's our part in all this? You know, and I think... In terms of the echo, you know, we've I think we've covered this this well all week. We've we've asked the right questions, and there was there was no doubt you were going to do the same today, Fitty, on a podcast like this as you always do. But it's up to us to try and keep it on the agenda as well, and and back anything that fans want to do and any steps they want to take. Yeah, absolutely, Marcus. He's right. I mean, seeing Boris Johnson talk representing a political party that sold off most of our industry to the highest European to the highest foreign bidder, um, it, it was farcical. I mean, you know, I can tell you a story about. Uh, Liverpool's UEFA Cup final in Athens and I'd narrated Stephen Gerrard's Sky documentary so the company that made it invited me and he said you can come to the final I was absolutely thrilled over the moon my mates were going over simultaneously on a different plane different, a completely different trajectory if you like they didn't have any tickets I got there I had four days in there where I was kept getting promised tickets and I said All right, have I got a ticket I went yeah 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 you've got tickets fine it's fine it's fine it's all very cool I was staying in the same hotel as Hicks and Gillette I was the most isolated Liverpool fan you'll ever see in your life. I just wanted to see Liverpool fans and I couldn't. The one night we went out, we went to a restaurant. The restaurant had been closed down for us. I mean, it was just ridiculous, right? So, on the day, um, I don't know if it was the day of the final. It might have been the morning of the final. We all got invited to this seafood restaurant. And I sat there. I didn't, know what I, I didn't really know what I was doing there. And then one by one, all these ex-players started coming in. And I was going, oh, there's such and such a player there. And there's... God, I remember he used to play for City and he used to play for... And after about an hour, I mean, this room was full then. People small talking. Not to me. I was just sitting in the corner. My own drinking a Diet Coke. But they were all small talking to each other. Talking about the good old days. In March, five or six people carrying two, two very, very laden, heavy laid, laid, laid down bags, plastic bags. They marched to a big table and they tipped these bags out and they were all passes, UEFA passes, and they cascaded onto this table. There was hundreds of them. And I sat watching. I've never felt more disgusted than myself for sitting there for being sucked into this nonsense. And for the fact that I knew my mates and thousands of other people didn't have tickets. And these people, and they were all freebies. They were all freebies every single one of them and they just went and took them they had a list of the names and they all one by one took these tickets and half of them were probably going to get sold that afternoon for 10 times the, the, the face value and it made me physically sick that night i got I, I went to that match and i sat in corporate section watching liverpool next to an empty seat i had to look over and see liverpool fans that had crowded in to another dangerous level um thousands of fans were ts gassed outside they were trying to get in Next to me was an empty seat, and behind me was a guy um, with a South African accent who was um, brokering the the, um, the TV rights for the, the Cricket World Cup all the way through the game. And that, to me, is when I see UEFA coming out going, this is spitting in the face of fans, they're all the same. This needs highlighting. You know, the FA, UEFA, FIFA, they're all the same, mate. All, it, all it, the new Super League did was turn up and say, we want a piece of it as well. What's the statistics? And like fifteen percent of the final tickets in Madrid went to went to fans split between two clubs, and it's football like football family. Go it's to known as the, the corporate football family. The corporate football family of prime ministers, people who've who've probably possibly never even been to a football game in their life. 
Well, it's sponsors as well. And there is an argument where they say, well, a lot of these people provide finance for for the cup and blah, blah, blah. That's fine. I understand that you do. But it goes way beyond that, mate. It goes way down the tree. Mm -hmm. And and for the fact that UEFA to come out and have a go at these clubs for for spitting in, in the faces of fans... UEFA's true true reason for not wanting them to leave too is also driven by money. They don't want to see the biggest players in the world, the biggest clubs in the world, leaving their competition because they know that without those clubs, they don't get their big TV deals, they don't get their big sponsorship deals. So ultimately, they're not bothered about a competition. They're not bothered about about fans. They don't want to see their TV deals, their their platforms reduced because they lose these big clubs. And it, the big clubs aren't are, are wrong in the fact that they think they should deserve more of the pie but UEFA are just as bad as you said and and even even their new Champions League proposals I think starting in 2024 they've made four new places that for clubs that aren't gonna that haven't earned uh, the right to play in the Champions League based on UEFA coefficients which god knows how they're they're made up and other places given for an, the highest rated coefficient team that hasn't qualified so in essence they're doing the same thing as they're just trying to maximize these big clubs entry into the Champions League so they can make more money. They're not. They're not really bothered. They don't. Being honest, UEFA don't want to see West Ham in the Champions League. They don't. They they would love to see Liverpool guarantee Manchester United guaranteed in the Champions League every every yeah. year because that that that's what makes them the money and that's at the end of the day all they care about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it'd have been interesting, Sean, if they turn around and say we're going to do this breakaway league, but it's going to be called the fans trophy or whatever um, and it's going to be done and the money generated the, the tickets are going to be cheaper and the money generated is going to go back into well there wouldn't have been that much hoo-ha because ultimately what Marcus has said is bang on what they're doing this was just another comp- this was just another person saying well actually you own the entire monopoly on football and that's not right UEFA owns the entire monopoly on European football so whatever they force feeders we've got to eat and that was this you could look at this and say well actually why not have someone else turn up and say, well, we'll do a, we'll do a trophy as well. We'll do it because the Champions League used to be the European Cup and it wasn't a league. So that's all they ever did then. They just they just made it, they monetized it more, they put more teams in it and they made it more of a, a, a profit for them. So in many ways, you could turn around and say, well, there actually shouldn't really be any reason why uh, another body should turn up and say, well, we're going to do it. Other than the fact that then we're complaining there's too many games in the league now anyway. So you, to have any other kind of trophy, well, where do you, what night do you play that? So you play on mm. uh, Monday night football. You play Saturday. You play Sunday, and then you've got you've got um, Tuesday and Wednesday for the Champions League. You've got Thursday for the Europa. Europa. Where are you going to put any? Where are you going to put another league anyway? You know, we talk about fatigue after three seasons. Now we'd, we'd literally just be flat on our backs. So for many many reasons, you know, this thing was never going to work. But but exposing the hypocrisy, mate, was, was is surely something that. Um, that it was worth it for in that. Another thing I want to tell, I want to ask you now, Sean, is in in the aftermath of all this, obviously Liverpool fans, you know, the fact that they've just dragged us through all this, the fact that we are now going to be called one of the greedy six um, for the rest of our lives, no doubt. I mean, don't get me wrong, we get called worse. Um, <laughs> and I urge any Liverpool fan, certainly if he's wearing the Liverpool top, if anyone ever in the match calls you greedy six, just point to the six on your chest, mates, because that's, that's where we're greedy. Um <laughs> There, there has been a call for the for the board to leave. Let, let's not get let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, JW Henry and, and the likes are going nowhere, are they not, Sean? They're not. And I, I've thought about this a lot. I've wrestled with this a lot over the last few days. You know, and I think well, you guys were talking about it before in terms of Sean Henry's apology and the way the club have handled it. I think the, the way that it's been communicated is just, was as bad as the idea itself. You know, we, we've spoken about the apology. The statement that came before that, there was, you know, 47 words of just pure corporate speak. The way the manager and the players were hung out to dry and Klopp was the first face of the club to publicly have to answer questions. And then I fell for him so much after that game on Monday night when, you know, his team had just conceded a late equaliser. He'd probably been wrapped up in having to think about this new massive issue that's been dumped on him. And then he got into a bit of a spat with Neville, didn't he, which was a bit unnecessary, but it just wasn't his fault. There was there was no name on the initial statement, was there, apart from well, Joel Glazer and, and Perez, you know, no one from FSG put their heads above the parapet. And But where I've come to on the owners is I still think it's a case of be careful what you wish for, even though they've U-turned before on all those mad things we've seen, trying to trademark the word Liverpool, ticket price rises, Fairlow decision that, that we saw last year. You know, bad calls, but ones that were to an extent more easily reversed and to an extent you can put down to naive, naivety or 
their business sense overrunning. You know, you can not that you can see what they were trying to do, but you can as long as they as long as you stop it, you can kind of well potentially move on for from it. This though is just the long term multi agency plot that was looking to reshape the game itself rather than just a strand of it. Having said all that, though, I just, I wouldn't say I have sympathy for them, but I would say that there's a thin line between making good business decisions for the club, which they do a lot of, you know, uh, getting Klopp in, promoting Edwards, their whole data-driven approach, staying at Anfield and redeveloping it, making Kirby. You know, these are things that I think our club has done well um, and and is the basis for the success over the past few years. And a bit of a bit of credit has to go to FSG for that. And that that thin line, it, it's difficult, isn't it? You know, you want to see your club prosper at the expense of other clubs. Fundamentally, that that's how football works. And you know, you think think this season. I know this is a bit of a weird example, but Ryan Brewster. You know, I, I still hope he makes it as a player. I'd love him to come back to Liverpool, but Liverpool got top dollar for him, given what he'd done so far in the game, and that potentially scotched Sheffield United's season. And that's what I mean. It's like if if your club has success, it's so often at the expense of other clubs. That is inherent in football, and you know it's something that everyone has to kind of deal with, and and you know work out their position on that dilemma. But what happened here goes obviously way above all that. That being said, I just think you know Liverpool are valued now at around two billion pounds. Can you find me a moral billionaire who's going to come in, pay that money, run the club philanthropically and successfully? I just think you know where we are in football, it, it, it's so difficult. Like, and that's why I'm thinking, well. As much as these guys are U-turn and as much as this one, I'm not even sure this one is forgivable. I think like their reputation and how fans perceive them has now indelibly changed. That you know, I don't see how they row it back and they earn hundred percent trust back ever. But saying that, I think they might be better decision makers than virtually anyone else I could think of who could come in, you know, apart from fans. And and, and that's that's kind of where you know you, you hope that if FSG are as dedicated to Liverpool and, you know, the stakeholders, the fans, as they say they are, the bravest and best thing they could ever do from here for the game of football and for Liverpool itself is to... It's to buy Haaland and Mbappe. No, I'm joking. Go on. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Certainly one way of looking at it. But, you know, it's, it's to help work towards some kind of, you know, fan ownership model or at the very, very least right now in the sh- in the short term, getting, getting fan representation on the board, getting Kenny Dalglish involved, listening to voices at the club, you know, the likes of Tony Barrett, people who you know and we know know the core values and, and what the club should be doing and how it should be acting. Um, so, yeah, it's the spotlight is, as it always has been, really, it's massively back on FSG. But I still think I'd prefer to have someone who at least does listen and at least does U-turn than, you know, someone who could potentially be a lot worse. Poetry in Motion on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, he's absolutely right, Marcus, isn't he, Sean? He's bang on the nail there. I mean, who are you going to get? You're not going to get any kind of... You know, you need a billionaire who looks at how fans feel and they don't exist because, you know, by the very idea of where they got where they got, they got there by standing on people's heads. That's how generally these business models go. Elon Musk, who is currently, you know, implanting chips into into monkeys' heads or, um, or, you know, um, Bezos uh, from Amazon, who, you know what I mean? Well, that means... Kickoff will be any time between nine and five, won't it? Um, so, you know, you're not going to get it. You, it unfortunately, I, you know, we're all very angry with them. They've done something. I think it. I think Sean's right. Unforgivable. Um, what they've done is forgetting's a different thing. We probably won't forget either. But but there has to be a lot of smoothing of the ways because they ain't going nowhere. So as much as you get people on Twitter going, I want them out. Well, really, okay, good luck, pal. Good luck with that email. It ain't happening. There was never any, any. There wasn't any contrition in in, in his apology in, in his statement. There wasn't any. Oh my God, we feel so bad about it. It was look, you know, this didn't happen. We didn't blah blah blah. It was on. Let's move on. And he and he quite categorically says, you know, moving forward in the future, it was all very, it was all worded to basically let us know we ain't going anywhere. Now, as Sean says, they've done a lot of things right uh, with this club as well, uh, and, and and we can't forget that. We can't forget that they've heavily invested. We can't forget. The, they might have singularly done something worse than Jackson, uh, um, Hicks and Gillette, but they're not as bad as where they were taking us. They were taking, they, they took us weeks away from administration. They've heavily invested in, in in the future of the club with the academy and stuff like that, and um, they have made some good decisions. They ain't going anywhere. We just have to hope, Marcus, that they 
really, really, really go out of their way to try and mend bridges um, and close this gap between owner and fans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're definitely not going anywhere. I think I think Manchester United to, to this day stands at the biggest buy, and even that was only eight hundred million back in the day. So you got you got to think Liverpool have valued at least two billion pounds to, to get this deal done. And, and at the end of the day, who's spending two billion pounds on a on a club to, to like like Sean said to, to to not run profitably? So if someone's paying that amount of money and then get offered to four hundred million signing up bonus, then they take it too. So. It's it's a, it's a strange one, and and I understand the fans' frustration. But one thing I'd say is is United fans have wanted the Glazers out for I've many years, and they're another American ownership group who are just going absolutely nowhere. And and the decisions that that they make and, and their statements proves that they're not going anywhere too. So the one thing that doesn't really sit right with me. I mean, obviously it is an unforgivable act, but the one the one thing that really really done it for me is the fact that they've not only went against what the fans. Well, they might not have known what the fans are going to do, even though it's pretty obvious that no one was going to approve of it. But the one thing that I've done it for me is the fact that they've went completely against everything Jurgen Klopp stands for. The manager who's who's been, in my lifetime, the best thing that's ever happened to Liverpool. The manager who's understands the club, understands the ethos, connects with the fans on a, on, on a level that I don't think anyone has seen before since since the days of, of Shankly. That, that, the connection between Klopp and this club is... is it's almost it's almost mythical. It's 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 he's such a perfect manager for everything Liverpool stands for as a city, as in a club. And FSG knew that he was going to be against the Super League guy. He, he gave that interview in twenty nineteen where he said he, he wouldn't be a part of it. And for FSG to go completely behind his back and, and try and implement an idea that he was so inherently against is just it doesn't sit right with me. And the fact that it could have drove a manager like Jurgen Klopp, a manager who has been so good for this club, a manager who the fans absolutely adore out of this club, is just, it's vile. And if that had happened, then so many of the fans would have walked with Klopp because he is almost bigger than the club in a way. He is he is no different to a, to a fan who you stand next to on the cop because that that's how important he is and that's how much he understands this club. And it just shows the how out of touch FSG truly are with, with the morals of the club and the morals and the ethos of everything this club stands for. So the only shining light for FSG now is that is that they have an opportunity to make it right. And a, and a, a sorry on video with some yellow roses in the background, which ultimately means nothing, isn't going to do it. They need, they have, but they do have an opportunity now to, to prove that they understand and they've made mistakes in the past, but now it's time for them to truly learn from it. If they are the first club out of these Premier League big big clubs, the Europeans big clubs, to come out and implement this fan model or something more fan led on the board, then I know that would definitely. I mean, personally speaking, it it would help in relations with the fans because, like you say, they're here to stay. But that relationship's now at an all time low, so they have to do something. That's not a sorry on a video recorded in Boston somewhere. They need to do something real. They need to be. They can be the face of this reform. They can. They can say, "Yeah, hold the hands up. We got it wrong." But now they have a huge opportunity to say. This is what we're going to do to put put it right and actually do some real action. Whether that will actually happen, I don't don't see it. But it, it's it's on a play for them to do so. It's on a play for them to to stand up, take 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 charge, and help you know save their reputation if nothing else. Because if if FSG do it, then that puts pressure on every other Premier League side to do it. And and there's your reform. And and FSG can in some ways be hailed as as a hero, even though they've done an unforgivable act. There's still there's still way that they can recover from this. Yeah, absolutely. And you'd like to think, Sean, with the likes of uh, Spinner Shankly, who've, who've shown in the past to be such a, a, an excellent fan force, uh, brilliant representatives of the fan base. Um, but I think it's something that Spinner Shankly are going to have to drive because I don't think, I think FSG would, be, would like it very much. Thank you very much if everyone just shut up and didn't go on about it. Uh, I can imagine the phone call has been very, yeah, that's, we're not going ahead with that. I'll see you later, guys. You know, they, they don't, they don't, there's not going to be any loss of sleep. That's, you know, that's, that's another business deal that just didn't quite go their way. I think Spirit of Shankly are going to have to go at it with, like a dog with a bone and point out, like Marcus has just said, the uh, the PR possibilities that they need to start embracing now, the positivity they need to start getting back into the club because the believers into doubters that we've turned around, the Klopp's turned around, has in one fell swoop been shattered by, by this greed and this complete disdain for anything that the fans wanted. Um, it's in very much in their best interest to to, um, to start making it up to us, but it is going to have to be driven by by the fans, Sean. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think you're spot on, Fitty. Like, 
Spirit of Shankly, I'm, I'm the spying cock group. I think everything they've said pretty much this week has been spot on. You know, they've been forthright and they've been quick to say things. I thought that was really symbolic that what Spy and Cop was saying, you know, we're, we're going to take our flags and banners out of the stadium. You know, that that's how we feel about this. And then obviously after the U-turn, they, they said, well, we're not going to do that now. They'll be in place for the weekend. You know, I think that, I remember that when, when that statement went up, that had like thousands and thousands of retweets and, um, you know, fans from all other clubs are saying, you know, well, and that's a fantastic and symbolic thing to do. And it's like you guys have just said, there is an opportunity here to to be the face of it, and like that, that could be the biggest U-turn they ever make if they go from being one of the, you know, scoreless backroom architects of something that's hugely unpopular to then being the face of something that could change football forever. But I do think, you know, like we've been saying so far, the the conditions are there now potentially that the kind of political uh, will, if you like, not just from the UK government but from UEFA, FIFA, from other bodies, the potential for it is there. The groundswell of fan support is there. I do think with FSG, you know, there's always this debate of who's their biggest priority. Is it Liverpool? Is it the Red Sox? You know, they are an umbrella organisation, so it isn't all about Liverpool. And, you know, they've recently taken on this £500 million investment avenue. There's been talk that they might try and broaden out the number of clubs they own and form a little network of them. So I do think it's not... If they just owned Liverpool and that was all they had and that was their one asset and that was that was their big ticket to sell it at some point down the line... I'd worry that they would ever move towards a fan ownership model. But I actually do think potentially the incentive is there. Imagine what it would do for them from a brand perspective. If they if they had this mini network of clubs who were were all fan-owned, who worked together and were a really positive force for the global game, I think that's kind of currency that they, they perhaps couldn't buy. Um, could be wishful thinking, but I think they're potentially there to be convinced about the positives in all this and about where we can go from here that will make every single Liverpool fan happy. Yeah, absolutely. And apologies to the Spine Cop as well. Well brought up, Sean. Uh, there are there are lots of, of, um, of, of fan movements and certainly Liverpool that do a great job. And Pete Carney with his banners as well is always is always there and is a force with it as well. You talk about an umbrella corporation. I was watching James Bond the other night. Spectre, they're an umbrella corporation as well. Um, <laughs> well, let, let's just quickly move on. We haven't got much time left, but let's just move on about the hangover of the Super League because um, as far as we're concerned, it's dead and buried. Probably these, these club owners are far from that and they're probably trying to snake their way in from, for some other, from some other direction. I don't know. Well, let's talk about retribution and let's talk about the potential punishment because we haven't heard anything about what the FA and what UEFA um, are talking about. Now, whether or not because Chelsea and because Man City are still active in the Champions League, um, that's, a, that's a bit of a headache for UEFA because what do they do? Kick them out. There was talk about uh, um, PSG being um, ceremoniously given the uh, the Champions League is they've been the only team left in the semis that, that that weren't part of the Super League. Ironically, PSG, who you know completely destroyed the transfer market in football by paying two hundred grand for the player, two hundred million, um, was suddenly morally on the high ground. But what do they do? Do they impose sanctions? Do they do, do are, are the FA and UEFA in any position to deduct points from these uh, six clubs? Um, Bans from Europe. I mean, we're doing quite well to ban ourselves from Europe at the moment. Let me tell you, <laughs> but uh, just on the pitch. But Marcus, where the, where does where does the next where do the next couple of weeks go? We've still got six or seven games left in the season. Is it is it uh, is there a potential um, punishment out there? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, again, it's a it's a it's like a minefield of issues. Again, coming back to, I thought it was quite funny that Alexander Seferin, the, the UEFA, um, the head of the UEFA, comes out and starts starts saying, "Oh, you've made a mistake, he's, but you can be welcome back in with open arms." A day, a day after he was in saying, "Our oh, players are going to be banned from international football." All this, you know, all these threats, and then as soon as, as soon as the big boys come back to the table, it's oh yeah, it's it's fine, you can come back in, and it just shows that UEFA at the end of the day can't can't afford to lose the, the support of these clubs because they ultimately need them to make more money, and it just shows that. That UEFA's models are all wrong, and and again they've got no backbone. They are pretty spineless, and the Premier League are probably in that same boat because the Premier League are the same. They need they need the big clubs, they need the big players, they need the big the big fan groups to to be on side. And I think I think Klopp's interview is, and I, I think a few people took it out of context when he was talking about you know, and it's not it's not fair that the fans were were having a go at, at the bus, but it, but what else were they supposed to do? Because the owners have thrown the team under the under the bus, they've thrown the manager under the bus, and the fans are going to vent in the only way they they know possible. So it's it's a it's a it's a it's a 
it's such a it's such a hard issue to discuss because do you punish the club? Do you punish the club, which is a completely owner-led decision? And then these players who have, have given everything all season, Klopp, who's, who's dealt with some, some personal issues, players have dealt with personal issues in, in one of the harder seasons in recent memory, for them to be deducted points for a decision that they had no say in is a bit wrong. But then at the same time, you can't let these owners, who are ultimately responsible for the club, get away with it. So it's... It's it's I, 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 there's no easy solution, but and then you've got to think the, the rest of the fourteen clubs are, are going to be pushing for the same same sort of retribution, and you know Liverpool probably can have no arguments about that because they were also at the forefront of of trying to get Manchester City banned from the Champions League. I think they were one of the one of the main clubs also pushing for that ban to be upheld. So it's a it's a strange one. I think whatever comes of it, Liverpool will probably just have to accept the punishments. Yeah, I mean, ideally, as a fan, Sean, you want to, if there's going to be a punishment, you'd rather it was a, a heavy financial punishment rather than a points one. Obviously, you know, every other team and every other fan who doesn't support any of these six clubs are going to be screaming for their heads because it, it, it's opportunist. And you're right, Liverpool were at the forefront of Man City, so there's no love, love lost there either. I was I was having a little Twitter debate with a mate of mine uh, uh, yesterday. He was talking, he's never Tony, and he was saying, look, the only way to hit these hearts is to ban them from Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I put on, well, look, you know, there's, Hit them financially. That's the way you hit them. You hit them in their pockets. And his point was, well, you hit them in the pockets by banning them from Europe. And I, you know, we had a little bit of a to and fro because, like I said, look, ultimately, you just want them out of Europe. You want them out of Europe, and you want deductions. So let's just let's just call it what it is. And then he was bringing up, well, why not? Because Leeds United got deducted fifteen points. You know, uh, Portsmouth did, and blah, blah. But you know, of course, that they were financial irregularities and, and insolvency issues that were to do with to do with you know inland revenue and to do with this country and to do with the FA. Breaking in, um, in breach of FA contracts, so it is one that's still up for debate. If there is going to be any punishment, I just I sincerely hope it hits in the wallet. It'll hit us in the, the wallets eventually, but I hope it, it it hits them in the wallet rather than any kind of points thing, Sean. Yeah, I, I think like points or anything domestically would be not necessarily unfair, but I think it would be a bit misguided because it, it's the. Whilst we've already argued that the Super League would clearly have had an impact on domestic leagues, I don't think that's necessarily the primary focus of the problem. But I think if, if UEFA said that the Dirty doesn't get a one or two year ban from European competition, I don't really think anyone could have any argument with that. And, and in a way, if we're now hoping for things to change and for reform to take hold and momentum to surge and to see a different world game in five to ten years, I think UEFA and others have got to start doing things. So... Something like that would be a bit of a leveller. You know, it would open up the opportunity for other teams to get a go. I think, I don't think people would lose interest. I mean, obviously, there is this argument of if the big teams aren't in the Champions League, you know, are as many people going to watch? I think they would if it was for just for a season or so. And, and then, you know, things were dealt with in a different way after that. But I think, you know, on that point as well, like, look at the table now, you know, Le- Leicester, where one of the days he doesn't, they're probably going to be in the Champions League. West Ham might be. So, you know, you can't really say that it would dilute the competition too much because, you know, like we said before, poor performance from the big six in, in England is doing that anyway. And I think if the likes of Liverpool weren't in Europe for a season or so, you know, it might force them to concentrate a bit more on the domestic cups and give those a bit of a boost and a bit of a fill-up when, when they probably need them. And that's that's part of the conversation as well, isn't it? You know, the FA Cup and the neglect of that and what that's become broadly at the, at the expense of Europe and at the expense of the battle for the top four or what have you is another issue that really we could do with solving. So, yeah, I don't think there could be any argument there. But you're right, Fitzy, I think that this conversation is going to rumble on and on. And in a way, though, I hope it does because everything needs to stay on the agenda because that's the only way things are going to change. Absolutely, mate. Well, let's just look at the league. I mean, you could throw blankets over third place and where we are in seventh. There's only a three-point difference. Um, Leicester have got two. Leicester have got a game in hand. To be fair, we we sit seventh at the moment on fifty three points. Massive, massive opportunity lost um, against uh, Leeds uh, the other night. Uh, in you know in the dying moments, but again, only ourselves to blame. Should have been four 0 up at half time. Ridiculous squandered chances, and Leeds will always come at you. Um, they proved that they beat City the week just before that. Uh, we're currently in seventh. Tottenham is sixth with fifty three, same as us. West Ham fifth. With 55, Chelsea 55, Leicester 56. As I say, Leicester with a game in hand, so potentially I've got 59 points there. Uh, Everton are a game uh, a game to the good with us. They've got a game in hand, but are also four points behind. So 
effectively we've nudged ahead of them even with that advantage um it's newcastle at home we'll just round off with this it's been a really interesting one thanks marcus for being a part of it and sean as well we'll just round it off um your thoughts about newcastle we got united after that so um and newcastle seem to be on a bit of a you know a bit of a curve they, they're getting results they're playing well uh, it's gonna be a tough one isn't it marcus yeah definitely and Comes back to just going back to that Real Madrid game with the fans in in the stadium and those missed chances. You got to think that that's a completely different game, and you'd hope that the events of the last couple of days and the last week will galvanise the players a bit. I think the collective attitude is is something to be applauded, and it's you can hope that it can you know galvanise the players a bit, lift spirits a little bit to see you know them all coming together was was great to see, and and the the, the power that the fans have got and. You just hope that they can they can deliver a performance that I think has been needed for a while. You know, there's a few good games after Christmas, and then it tailed off a bit. And then there was there was signs against Wolves that you think, oh yeah, we you know, we can battle battle this out. And, and like you say, for how bad we've been this season, to be still in that race, well in that race for the top four, is is quite remarkable. To be fair, so yeah, it it you hope it can be a catalyst to it to it to a run where you think Liverpool will probably need to win every game to, to have a real real good chance of getting into that top four and hopefully a win against Newcastle can kickstart that huge game against United. Yeah, absolutely, Sean, same. Yeah, I, I think I wouldn't quite say the Reds are odds-on to get in the top four yet, but I think I think I said the other week that we'd finish fifth, um, but then we've got our act together a little bit since then and now after Leeds is out the way, I think you really only look at United as a game where Liverpool won't be hot favourites to, to win it. And, you know, the Villa game was massive, I think. They played well throughout, but obviously the circumstances of winning quite late on were, were good, really, and just to break the downfield case and take that positive energy forward. Yeah, I think I think Liverpool will just about do it. I think, you know, they're used to the business end of seasons, aren't they? And some of the other teams around them perhaps aren't. So other teams will drop points. And as long as Liverpool win the games that they should win, and can keep going at Anfield. Um, yeah, I think they'll, they'll just about sneak in there. Excellent shot. Uh, Marcus, have you enjoyed your debut? Yeah, definitely. It's been a pleasure to get a few things off my chest anyway. Good lad. It was a strong, strong debut, son. Very good. Some lovely moves there down the wing and that. <laughs> um, listen, Marcus, thanks very much. Onwards and upwards, my friend. And Sean as well. Appreciate it, lads. Thank you. Uh, so that is it. Um, one more poetry motion uh, in the bag near the end of the season. Uh, you know what? The thing is, one thing remains through all this nonsense is the club and the club will always remain there. All these ideas of RIP the club, the club will is going nowhere. Owners come and go. We've had them before. We will have more, no doubt, but whatever. Even if they stay, the club is the most important thing. The club stood together. The fans stood together. The staff stood together. Um, Jordan Henderson, we should mention, uh, putting out um, uh, tweets and stuff, showing solidarity. You know, we have the best fans in the world, the best club in the world and the best team in the world and the best manager in the world and the staff as well. Owners aside, you can't pick and choose them. We've got them. They've done a lot of good. They've done some bad as well. But we remain Liverpool Football Club. We always will. Onwards and upwards. Uh, let's get Newcastle under the belt. Let's do United. Let's try and get fourth place. But if not, whatever whatever the cards may fall. We just need to get to this end of the season and just try and reboot and get that amazing team back. Thank you, Sean Bradbury and Marcus Banks. I'm Neil Fitz. Uh, see you all again soon. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Poetry in Motion podcast on the Blood Red channel.